This week, I had the privilege on Thursday and Friday of going with some of our staff to the Global Leadership Summit. Uh, the GLS is an event that is broadcast out of Chicago but goes around the world. They reach about 300,000 leaders all over the globe, and they have big-name speakers. They had this year, there was like um, Condoleezza Rice was one of the speakers, and I forgot his name now, but the guy who's the CEO of Intel, which is kind of a company I've heard of, uh, Dallas Jenkins, who did The Chosen, just pastors and business leaders and people of all different um, walks of life. One of the particularly impactful speakers we heard was a lady named Erin Myers, and Erin talked about her work in um, defining company values. And so she began by sharing um, sort of the boilerplate values that many companies adopt for their own. And I actually have a slide. Will you just put that up? Um, the really simple values. This is from a real company. Um, respect. We treat others as we would be treated ourselves. Integrity. We work with customers and prospects openly, honestly, and sincerely. Communication. Here we take time to talk with one another and to listen. Excellence. We are satisfied with nothing less than the very best in everything we do. Leave that up for a second. So um, her point was that, you know, many companies have values like this that are, you know, good, kind of boilerplate. Um, this particular company uh, had these values on their letterhead. They had them uh, in the lobby of their main building. By the way, anybody want to guess what company this was? Anybody know off the top of your head? This was, yeah, this is Enron. Yeah. Um, so um, her point, yeah, you can take that down. Thank you. Um, her point was that very often we define values for our companies around things that are absolute positives that nobody can really argue with, right? Nobody can argue with integrity. And the problem is, if you have integrity, you have it, and having it on the wall won't make you be more uh, loyal or faithful or good. And if you don't have it, you're not going to say, wow, I was going to embezzle hundreds of millions of dollars, but then I looked at our letterhead and changed my mind. So, um, Aaron's point uh, was that when we think about values, of course we have these core beliefs that are important that everybody has to share, like integrity and excellence. But we also need values that help us when we face real practical dilemmas in our business. So, she gave an example. She said, and I'm actually going to make you vote on this, so listen up. She said, imagine that you are um, the uh, middle-level manager of a group. You have like eight to ten people you supervise in an advertising company. And because of your position, you were aware that the company's owners are considering, considering selling the business. And your employees, your people that you supervise, do not know this. And nothing is done, right? We don't have a buyer lined up. They're just beginning the process. It could take weeks or months or years. Here's the question. As that supervisor, do you tell your eight to ten employees that the company is entering a season where they're trying to sell the business because you value transparency? Or do you not tell them because you're afraid that, hey, they might go looking for other jobs if they know the company is going to be sold and you value stability? So, do you emphasize transparency or do you emphasize stability? Um, I'm actually going to make you vote. Are you ready? Here we go. Uh, so, uh, you're going to raise your hand. If you are of the opinion uh, that you would want to let your employees know because you think transparency is an important value in a company, raise your hand. All right? I love it. 
Great. Okay, put your hands down. If you are of the opinion that stability is important in a business and it's not time to tell your people yet, raise your hand. All right. Being brave. I'm a, I'm a B. Sorry. Uh, okay. Uh, what, what I love about this question is that it's a real practical application, right? Um, when we come to a fork in the road, what direction do we take and what are the values that help us know how to take it? So, um, I'm not going to tell you which of those is the right answer. I don't know which of those is the right answer. Um, but I, I, I love this concept that we need, we need values that help us when we reach a dilemma. So, I think in 1 Corinthians 11, we have a dilemma. And the dilemma is, what the heck do we do with this passage, right? I mean, are, are we going to start a new requirement at our church that women must wear hats on Sunday? Well, by the way, I'm loving the hats. It's great. Um, are we going to say, hey, we don't, we don't do that. That's crazy and silly and old-fashioned and weird, and that's something we can ignore. And, and how do we decide, right? When we come to a Bible passage like this, um, we need some uh, instructions that help us with this dilemma. And it is great to say that we believe the Bible is the Word of God and infallible and an error and all this thing. Sure, I believe the Bible is the Word of God, but I don't know what the Bible is telling me, right? I want to do whatever the Bible says, but how do I figure out what the Bible is saying? Are, are we together? Um, so, uh, we're going to do something different today. We're going to do a little bit less of a sermon, a little bit more of a Bible study together, and I want to give you um, five ideas that I think are helpful guidelines as you come to sort of these dilemmas of Scripture reading where you're not sure what the Bible is saying. Uh, two quick caveats before I do that. The first caveat is um, normally my goal in our preaching is to touch like your heart more than your head. I'm just going to tell you, this is more of a head than heart sort of conversation, so stay with me. Um, the second thing is, um, in the immortal words of the Pirates of the Caribbean, um, as they speak about the Pirates Code, these are really more of guidelines than rules, okay? So I don't want you to walk away saying, hey, this is what I must do. I think these are helpful tools for us as we think about how we read the Bible together. All right, so having said that, um, I want to pull out five guidelines that I think are helpful for us um, when we come to a passage like this, like a dilemma sort of passage, and are trying to figure out what to do. Um, and you might, you know, this might be crazy guidelines, um, but you might even consider writing these down. I'm pretty sure there's pens in the back of your pew, and I'm pretty sure you got a bulletin. So, um, here's my first. We got five, okay? And my first one is really simple, and I, I, I bet you can guess it's Jesus. Uh, and and, and on, on a really important fundamental level, every time we come to a Scripture passage and we're not sure what to do with it, we begin by going back to the story of Jesus. We get, the whole Bible is about Jesus, right? I mean, the parts that are obviously about Jesus and the parts that are not obviously about Jesus, we believe that the entire creation story, the entire uh, arc of human history, the entire salvation story, all of it is about this incredible moment where God became human and lived and died and lived again. And so, whenever we come to something that we're not sure about in Scripture, we say, how does this help me understand who Jesus was or what He did or how I follow Him better? Okay? So, that's always my first thing is, how does this bring me back to Jesus, back to the gospel, back to the story of Christ? Uh, and I'm going to be um, clear. We're going to come to this twice. Um, but for now, um, I want to point out just one or two places where I think this does point us to Jesus in a really interesting way. And so, maybe you noticed even as 
I was reading, particularly in those first 16 verses, that we get a little bit of a conversation about Jesus. He shows up in primarily verse 3 where Paul says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the husband is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. It's a really interesting passage, and I think it gives us a, a fundamental metaphor with which Paul is working. Paul is saying, number one, all of us are under Christ's authority. Um, this is repeated elsewhere in the Bible, right? Uh, Paul says Christ is the head of the church, right? He's, he's the boss. He's the jefe. He's the leader. Um, but then we get this idea that in the husband and wife relationship, there is something like the God and Jesus relationship. Um, and that's really powerful and interesting and may inform our conversation as we go on, um, that somehow God's relationship to Jesus, and I think when we say God here, Paul means God the Father, and his relationship to God the Son is supposed to be similar to the relationship of a, head, uh, sorry, of a husband and his wife. Just file that away, right? File that away that as we go through this passage and we get into some weird stuff that Paul sees this connection as more similar to the Trinity than it is to the patriarchy. I just saw the Barbie movie yesterday, so I'm all about the patriarchy. Okay. Um, more, more akin to the Trinity than to the patriarchy. Okay. Uh, so, we're actually, we're going to come back to Jesus in a minute, um, but just hold that in the back of your head. And let's go on to our second guideline. And our second guideline is two things. Really, I, I wanted to have five, so I combined two. Um, so, it's genre and context. Okay. So, uh, let's talk about this together, but, but slightly separate. Let's talk about genre first. When we read the Bible, the first thing we do when we open a book is to say, what kind of thing am I reading? By the way, you do this with everything you ever read. Right? Everything you ever read, the first thing you do, you open it up and you say, ah, okay, this is Percy Jackson. I'm going to read Percy Jackson differently than I read, say, Thomas Jefferson, right? Um, they're, they're different kinds of authors. I'm going to read Percy Jackson differently than I read um, Emily Dickinson, right? So, when we come to Scripture, we say, hey, is this, is this poetry or is this prose? Is this uh, history or is this metaphor? Is this something that's spoken from a prophetic vein or something that's pro spoken in a clear instructional, you shall not kill sort of way, right? Well, what kind of thing am I reading? Because we don't begin with that question. We don't have any idea how to apply the rest of the rules of our interpretation. So, the first thing we're going to say is, what kind of genre is this? And in 1 Corinthians, that's actually kind of an easy answer, right? It's a letter. It's a letter, um, which means we're reading half a conversation. Two people are talking back and forth, or in this case, Paul and a church are talking back and forth, and we got half of the story. We know what one half thinks. So, that creates some challenges for us. Uh, let's, let's talk about the second piece of, of this rule, which is context. And, and this, in fairness, is the part that's hardest for us to just grasp on our own. Um, sometimes we have to go to other resources. And guys, sometimes I, actually not sometimes, always I go to other resources, right? I can't go back and tell you everything that was happening on the theme of hats in the ancient world off the top of my head, right? So I get context by reading historians and by reading scholars and reading people that know more than I do. Um, but let's talk about context for a minute uh, because on the other half of this conversation of a letter, there's some really important components of the story 
um, that will help us make sense of what Paul's saying. Here's the first piece of context. Um, we, we get it in verse 5. Actually, I'll read verses 4 and 5 again. Any man who prays or prophesied with something on his head disgraces his head, but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head. This may not be immediately intuitive, um, but as soon as we start talking about praying and particularly prophesying, we're talking about public worship. Okay, so We'll talk a lot about prophecy in the next couple of weeks when we do spiritual gifts. Um, but in a, in a nutshell, let me just say this. In the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, prophecy is done um, by a Christian speaker inspired by the Spirit talking to their congregation. There's no such thing as individual prophecy. It doesn't even make sense. Who would you be prophesying to, right? You don't go off in your own room and prophesy. You, you bring the Word of God to other people. Prophesying in the New Testament can be sort of spontaneous, like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, God just told me I have to say this. It also can be planned, right? I have been praying and thinking about this Scripture and how God wants us to talk about it, and I believe that I'm speaking what God wants you to hear, right? So, we are talking in this passage about in what context men and women can lead worship, Right? Talking about in what context men and women can pray and preach in front of their congregations. It's really important. So, the fundamental assumption here uh, that Paul is making is that women can pray and prophesy or preach in their worship services as long as they're wearing hats, right? Um, this is not a question about whether women can lead worship. It's about what they have to wear when they're doing it. R- really important context. Now, here's the next Im- important piece of context for us. Um, in this passage, we have many times the word woman and the word man. Uh, the word man in the Bible is, uh, in this case, is honor or aner, and the word woman in this case is guna. Uh, by the way, uh, guna leads us to gynecologist, right? Woman doctor, just the, the word for woman. However, the word aner or aner and the word guna are also the word for husband and wife. And there isn't another word for husband and wife that I can think of off the top of my head that's used in the New Testament. So, when you see passages like Ephesians, which says, you know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave them up for her, um, that is aner and guna. And so, it is a choice the translator has to make about whether each verse in this chapter is about husbands or men, wives or women. Interesting right? So, uh, if you look even at that verse 3 again, it says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every aner, and the aner is the head of his guna, and God is the head of Christ. So, that means um, this could be a passage that's talking about all men and all women, or this could be a passage that's primarily talking about husbands and wives, and that's a really interesting piece of context. Uh, Let's talk about one more really important piece of context in this passage, and let's talk about what it means to have your hair down. So, um, there is a lot of debate about this, actually. I read several commentaries this week, and they didn't all say the same thing. Um, But what is consistent is that in the ancient world, uh, a woman having her hair uncovered and loose usually meant that she was unmarried. 
Okay? This is true both in, in Greek and in Roman culture. It meant you were unmarried if your hair was down and loose. If your hair was up in a bun, I don't know if they wore rings or not, but it was kind of the same message, right? Hey, I'm, I'm taken or I'm not taken. And so there was a sense that if your hair is down, you're sort of available to meet people and, and maybe date and maybe get married. And if your hair is up, you're not available. From that implication, we get another implication um, which was that women who have their hair down and loose in the ancient world were often trying to communicate that they were available, uh, and not just perhaps available to date and be married, but perhaps available for uh, skipping to the good parts, okay? And so, a lot of cultic prostitutes communicated that they were prostitutes by having their hair down, okay? It was also the case in the ancient world that very often in pagan worship services, even married women might let their hair down, literally and figuratively, in a worship service as part of an act of worship to Aphrodite or whatever, okay? So, all of that weird context is in the back of this conversation. So, when Paul says, hey, women, you should wear a hat, you should wear a veil, you should have your hair up, um, he may not be saying that God's great desire is to keep haberdashers in business, right? He may be saying, in fact, hey, if you're married, live like you're married. And if you're a Christian, don't live like you're going to the temple of Aphrodite. And hey, we want everybody to come to our church, but while you're here, let's not um, be actively hawking our wares, um, so, uh, that, that changes a little bit what's going on with this hair and hat conversation. Okay, so um, there's more to say, but, but uh, fundamentally as we read the story and um, we begin thinking about how Jesus relates, and then we talk a little about genre and context that might make sense of what we're reading. Uh, and then our third tool, our third guideline is really simple, um, but in this case really hard, and it's that we read the plain sense of the text. And what I mean by the plain sense is um, when, when God says, you shall not steal, I don't need to explain that. Right? You know what stealing means, and you know what it means when I say you shall not do it. Right? Uh, and so, whenever possible, when we read the Bible, we say, hey, what's the most basic, obvious message this author could be communicating? Uh, and this creates some challenges in this particular passage um, because we're told women you should wear hats on your head, and men, you should not wear hats on your head, especially when you're leading worship. So, uh, quick story as an aside, three, three, four years ago, our church took a trip to Israel, and while we were there, we went to the Wailing Wall, which is um, one of the walls of the platform that King Herod built upon which the temple was located. And the, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, is the closest that the Jewish people can physically get to the site of the ancient temple um, and, and still be allowed to worship because the literal site of the ancient temple is now a Muslim holy site. So when you go into the Wailing Wall area, um, the, the, the Jewish tradition is that men have to wear hats. As an aside, this may be, I'm not sure this is true, but one author I read this week suggested that this tradition of wearing yarmulkes sort of appears in the fourth century A.D., perhaps as a response to Paul saying men shouldn't have their hats covered. I don't know if that's true, but anyway. Um, so, we get there, and we got these little hats. This is the little hat, uh, the, the, I believe that's a yarmulke that um, they gave us to wear when we walked in the whale and whale space, and it looks like 
I think I look very good in a yarmulke. Looks like that. Um, and there are several things that are going that are great about this. The, the first is, uh, if I gotten this earlier, it does cover up the male pattern baldness a little bit. Um, um, but but also, uh, interestingly, we walked into the space of worship, and we are praying for people. In fact, I had people in this church that I had written prayers out that I stuck them in the wall, as the tradition is there, and I thought, huh, I am praying with my head covered, right? I'm doing exactly what Paul said not to do. I'm a man praying with my head covered. And if I was to read this in the plain sense, perhaps that was wrong. I I don't think that's the plain sense of the text, okay? Uh, I think that we have to read the context before we get to the plain sense. It was not plain to Paul that 2,000 years from now, I couldn't wear a yarmulke to pray at the Wailing Wall. But it was plain to Paul that we are expected to honor our marriage commitments and to distinguish ourselves from the culture around us and to not fit into the culture so profoundly um, that we are indistinguishable from it. It was plain to Paul that there are differences between men and women, and those are not bad but good, and that some of those are subject to cultural distinctions, which might change. Uh, And so, uh, as we come to the plain sense of the text, every time we read, we say, hey, what's the most obvious thing that this passage might be telling me? But how is that informed by the genre and the context that I'm reading? Okay, um, I'm running out of time. So, uh, I got two more. Um, the, the next one that's so important for us is we let Scripture interpret Scripture. Okay, we let Scripture interpret, interpret Scripture. And this is a really simple but important idea. If you read a very confusing Bible passage, one of the most helpful things you might do is go read more clear Bible passages about that same topic. Easy example, if you read the book of Revelation and you're like, I have no idea what's going on, welcome to the club. Revelation is very confusing. Guess what? In the Gospels, Jesus preaches a sermon about the end of the world that is pretty straightforward and clear. Go read what Jesus says and then use what Jesus says to make sense of Revelation, right? It's that simple. So, uh, same thing here. Um, We get some weird language. We get some weird stuff that happens in this passage. We get a language about um, a man is the image and reflection. It really doesn't say reflection. It says glory. A man is the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. For this reason, a woman ought to have authority on her head because of the angels. Uh, The angels think, I don't know what to do with. Um, Paul's talking about Genesis 2. He's talking about Genesis 2. So we go back and we read Genesis 2 again. And we say, ah, I get it. Is, Is God saying that Paul, I'm sorry, is Paul saying that Adam is in the image of God and Eve is in the image of Adam? Of course not. That's not what the Bible says. Um, In fact, the Bible says Adam's not complete. It's not good for a man to be alone. And God makes all kinds of partners for Adam that are inadequate. They're the animals, right? And then finally, God makes a partner that's bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. And Adam starts spouting poetry, and he has this amazing partner. And 
and she is His glory, right? She is the thing that He has been waiting for that makes Him whole and complete. It's not that wives exist to glorify their husbands. No, we all exist to glorify God. It's that somehow in this coming together, there is a completeness and a wholeness and a unity that we were supposed to have and didn't until God finished the creation. So, um, we let Scripture interpret Scripture. By the way, um, just for you guys with long hair, I would also remind you that there are many figures in Scripture that famously had long hair. There was a tradition of the Nazarite vow where men couldn't shave their hair to be faithful to God. And the most famous Nazarite is Samson, right? Remember Samson, big, strong guy, long hair. So, if you got long hair, Bob Hawker, I'm looking at you. Um, You're doing it right, brother. You're doing it right, okay? All right. Uh, Last but not least, um, the last guideline for us as we read Scripture is we read Scripture in community. And and what I mean by that is we never read the Bible entirely on our own. We've said this before, but the sin of heresy isn't a sin of getting it wrong. People who are heretics are not heretics because they had a bad idea. They're heretics because they got it wrong, and they came to the church, and the church said, that's not what it means. We believe this thing. And they said, I think I'm right, and all you other Christians are wrong. Right? Heresy is a sin of pride. Uh, And so, we read in community. We come back to each other, and we say, hey, how do you read this story? What does it mean to you? Where are you seeing the Holy Spirit moving within it? How have other Christians read it? One of the great gifts for us in the Christian faith is that there is no There are few, let's say it this way, there are few, if any, deep theological questions that hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of Christians haven't already asked. And most of them have been addressed, not always perfectly, but you're not the first one to wonder what you're wondering. And so we go to the community and we read together and we say, hey, where do you see God in this? And where has the church historically seen God in this? And of course, the church can get it wrong sometimes, which is why this is our fifth tool and not our first tool. But boy, it is such a great resource to say, you know what, um, as cool as it is to wear hats in church and as um, much of a great Southern tradition as it is for me and, and my culture, the, the church has kind of spoken, right? The church has kind of said, hey, this is not a passage that says women must wear hats in worship. This is a, tr- a passage that's talking about a lot of other stuff, um, but that's not really its big takeaway. So, um, as we read, um, whenever you get to a dilemma in Scripture, I want to encourage you to come back to these guidelines, right? To, to read first uh, with the story of Jesus, to consider the genre and the context of the story, to look for the plain sense of the plain meaning of the passage, to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and to read in community. Now, I want to just for a minute, I want to come back to Jesus, because I think when we when we read this whole passage, thinking about the gospel of Christ, it may have one last message for us. Yes, absolutely, Paul wants us to respect the institution of marriage. And yes, absolutely, Paul wants us uh, to avoid looking like the pagan culture around us. And yes, absolutely, Paul wants us to respect the act of worship and that those who lead worship do so in a Christ-centered way. But perhaps Paul is also saying that when we cling to our rights, we miss the gospel message, that Jesus' story is all about giving up our privilege to help those without it.
Maybe that's what this communion thing is all about too, right? Maybe this communion thing is all about this idea of the sacrifice of Jesus for us, for the unworthy, for the undeserving, uh, that, that love and grace come back to this fundamental idea that um, I give up my rights and my privileges for the sake of loving and serving another. And perhaps the greatest danger of eating the body or drinking the blood in an unworthy manner is this, that we do so seeking our elevation over another in contradiction to all that Jesus sought and taught. Deborah Hirsch tells a story about her worship space and the sacrament of communion. She says, in our church, our big square purple communion table was set up right in the middle of our gathering, symbolizing Jesus, not the band, not the pulpit, as our center. On the table were several large loaves of bread, bottled wine, and grape juice. The table was set low to the ground with cushions scattered around so people could kneel or sit for as long as they needed, and they did. Alone or with someone else, people came to meet with God, and many remained seated there until way after our gathering finished. One of my most precious memories was captured one Sunday morning as I looked around that purple table. Sitting, breaking bread, was a lady who had known Jesus her whole life. She was in her 80s, our oldest member, and dressed in her white lawn bowling outfit. I assume she's wearing a hat. Right next to her sat a gay Jewish man in leather chaps who was HIV positive and curious about Jesus. Among others was a woman who had four kids going through a very messy divorce, a speech pathologist who worked at a local hospital, and a former exotic dancer who'd found Jesus at a strip club. As I watched them all, I wept. What a symbol of the broken, diverse body of Christ. Most people come to church because they are spiritually and relationally hungry. They come looking to connect with God and others. And if they don't feel welcome around the table, how then will they eat? It's one of the few healing places where the broken can come, sit, and partake. The broken body of Christ is reflected not just on the communion table, but also around it. Isn't that what communion is meant to symbolize? Perhaps part of Paul's whole message in this story is that we are called to be a people who, who partake of the life of Jesus by giving up our privilege and our position for the sake of another, that we are people that are simply called to do justice and love kindness and walk or sit humbly with our God. As we come to the table this morning, um, my prayer for us is that we come with that same mindset, that we come um, trusting that all those who seek will find, all those who ask will receive, all those who knock will find the door opened for them, that whoever and wherever we have been and we are, God invites us to leave all of that behind and to find a new life and a new identity at the table of Christ. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.